Hello and welcome, esteemed gamers, friends, listeners. It is Leighton here from Leighton Night with Brian Wecht, and I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking to get even more podcast goodness to put in your face, then we've got just the thing for you, which is the official Leighton Night Patreon. We have several tiers where you can get access to recommendation lists for every episode, listen to Patreon-exclusive minisodes, get into the super awesome fan Discord, and watch videos like Brian's songwriting process for jingles on the show, or me taking apart and cleaning my mechanical keyboards. It's really fun and cool, and we super appreciate your support. It's neat. We would love to see you there. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy. Love you. Bye. This is a big deal today, everybody. This is a big deal because I get to hang out with two of my favorite people and just shoot the shit, and then that's quote-unquote work. I was on, uh, which was it, the second episode of the show, and now I'm on the third episode of the show? It's super exciting. (laughs) You are our first ever repeat guest, Jory. Wow. First ever. Wait, isn't our first repeat guest Jarek? I don't consider Jarek a guest because he's he's part of the family, like the production team. All right. So, I mean, technically, yes, you're correct. But our first non-production team. I didn't mean to undercut Jory or Jarek's significance to the show. I'm getting some whiplash over here. I don't know how to feel about it. (laughs) Yeah, Jory, since episode two of Late Night compared to episode three of Late Night where we are right now, you know, a lot has changed. The dynamic is very different. And I'm sorry that you're getting thrown into this triangulation. You've like recorded a bunch of unreleased episodes. I don't really understand. Yeah, like a year's worth. It's like a Wu-Tang album kind of situation, so... Um... Is Shkreli going to buy this? Yeah, I've got him <laughs> on the hook. I've got him on the hook for it. I've negotiated him up to $5. Oh, really? I, I think I've got him in the bag. He's pretty tight on the pocket, so that's actually... <laughs> that's pretty good. Seems like a good guy. Yeah, just a decent human. Do you think we could work him up to 10 bucks, maybe? I'll see what I can do. Or maybe we can just insanely inflate the price of our entire back catalog of uh, late night episodes <laughs> until it uh, puts people's lives in danger for the sake of our own greed. I like that. That's it's very American. So does he. You just got to get to know him. You just got to interview him for a couple of months and really, you got to write an obituary for him and then you'll understand him. Wasn't he in the news again recently? Yeah, it was a reporter was writing an expose about him and then fell in love with him and is now... right gonna marry him once he's out yeah i (sighs) i read like the first paragraph of that article and i was like i don't need to be putting this in my head oh same i feel very understood by that oh well i read all of it oh (laughs) Layton. well listen as somebody who makes horrible 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 decisions in terms of who i pursue romantically reading that was just like a horror movie. It was like, oh, girl, girl, no, 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 girl, no. Yeah, that did have to be validating. Well, it's like, at least I'm not this bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is, like, I can understand how you got here, girl. God help you in your repeated lapses of judgment. <laughs> what was her deal, Layton? So she was a tech reporter assigned to cover him and then fell in love with him. And now... If I recall correctly, I think the real turn is that he ended up ghosting her. What? <laughs> what? I didn't hear that. That is a delight. And like, one hates to say, I told you so. But yeah. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. She got ghosted 
by Martin from prison after torturing her entire career and marriage. Well, oh, she was married. Oh, I forgot she was married. Oh, no. Oh. <sighs> I don't want to project any kind of condescension or anything like that when I say this, but like, if you fall in love with that man, you have to be going through something, right? <laughs> I would think so, especially when you've just done a very deep dive into the person, right? It's not like, oh, I met this really cool guy. Oh, maybe there's a skeleton in his closet. It's like, no, I just did a detailed report on every reason this guy sucks, and now I love him. Yeah. That doesn't seem like something someone in their right mind would do. Maybe she was just really hoping to listen to that Wu-Tang album and... uh <laughs> Is the long con. Or maybe he's just really hot. Like, really hot. He might be the hottest person in the world. Yeah, we've only seen him wearing those, like, men's warehouse suit jackets. Like, <laughs> we don't know how cut he is. Brian, do you want to go on record for that? Is that he's your number one hottie? I'm saying that there is a logical possibility when he gets all shrellied up <laughs> that he looks just unreal. <laughs> you know, he is the most attractive person. He is actually irresistible. That's what I'm saying. Mm, I think we're going to have to send a convoy over to him. Brian, can you brush up on your journalism skills a little bit? No need. They're already perfect. <laughs> You're ready to fall in love. Oh, that would be the ultimate if I did a, an investigative journalism piece. Actually, on this woman, mm -hmm. I could do it and then fall in love with her and then she could ghost me. And then she would feel better about herself. But it was a long con because I was doing it to get her to feel better. Do you tell her that? No, I don't tell her that, but it comes out in the article I write. Of course, as we all know, as good journalists do, you don't say shit about the thing to the person while you're talking to them. And then the article comes out and it's like, oh, oh, oh okay. That's right. And it'll be the first article on the new Gawker when they reboot it. <laughs> Fucking Hulk Hogan's coming for you. Uh -huh. Hey, bring it. He's old. I could definitely... Definitely beat up Hulk Hogan. If there's one thing that my whole deal screams, it's I could beat up old Hulk Hogan. Oh, 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 I couldn't say it. Right? I was like, oh, Hogan. <laughs> old Gorolla. Old Hulk Hogan. Old Hulk Hogan. I was thinking a lot about Arnold Schwarzenegger, as you do. <laughs> and I watched that clip of there was that thing where there was like something called like the Arnold Games. It was like a wild combination of like a cool thing he was doing and an insane like puff up vanity piece where he was what he was like hosting a like exhibition for like child athletes in South Africa like 10 years ago and like a dude came up behind him and three feet off the ground both legs drop kicked him right in his back what <laughs> yeah for no reason out of nowhere he like called him the Terminator and did that or something like that oh my god and, you know, how old is Arnold Schwarzenegger now, like 10 years later? He's like 140. <laughs> I would imagine he's like 60 -ish. I think he's 70. He's got to be older than that. Yeah, and I think he was like 60 at the time. And, like, he takes these two planted feet right in, like, the upper part of his back. I know that I would be fucking in bed for a week if this happened to me. And he just, like, stumbles and then looks back like, what just happened? He's 73. Yeah. Holy crap. They're sort of not full of shit. Like a dude like that actually is pretty tough. I couldn't do it. Do we want to put this to the test? That's a Patreon goal. We get 400 and then I will dropkick Brian both feet in the back. <laughs> There's no downside for me. Well, and it's perfect because the Patreon money will cover the medical bills. Like a little bit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Wikipedia lists Schwarzenegger's birthplace as tall, 
Allied-occupied Austria. He was born in like 43 or something like that, right? 47. Wow. So it's post-war. But I assume that tall, that's got to be the same tall of the Neanderthal, right? Oh, wait, is it? T-H-A-L. Yeah. Huh. Does that mean like person or something? When I look up Neanderthal, the first thing under synonyms listed is homo stupidus. <laughs> what? It's a Haeckel classification from 1895. Look this up. Look up the Wikipedia for Neanderthal. <laughs> and the first synonym is homo stupidus. I think that whoever wrote that has been canceled. <laughs> Well, I assume that's the same Haeckel as those posters, you know, of all the old animals. Yeah. Almost stupid is. I vibe with that. They retconned that within three years. <laughs> People were so judgmental back then. There's like a whole anti-elitist bent when it comes to science. And it's like, I see where it came from to an extent, like when these guys were assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I just love using science to be a dick. Okay, so I was wrong. Tall, I think it's just something different for Schwarzenegger. It is the Neander Valley. Does tall just mean man, like you said, Jory? I think that's right. Hmm. Anyway. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, having been born in tall, allied-occupied Austria, in the city of man, that explains yeah. uh, the toxic masculinity he carried with him into his adult life and into his governance as governor of California. And it explains why he's tall. <laughs> I mean... Having just done a Wikipedia deep dive on the man, it seems like there's some dispute about his height. He actually probably is somewhere around five foot ten. That's it? He's he's pretty average. Yep. Really? Yeah. Hmm. He wears lifts. Wow. And he's insecure about it. Has either of you seen Terminator Dark Fate? No, I did not. Is that the newer one? Yeah. I've watched the half in the bag for it. I, I know I did that. <laughs> yeah. I've seen the first Terminator. I haven't seen any of the others. I, it's not really my... Wait, you've never seen any Terminator movie except the first one? I think. Not even T2? Maybe. Wow. The first one is basically a riff on Halloween. It's pretty much a slasher movie. Yeah. Yeah. The second one is, it's not even the type of film that I think of myself as loving here in my adult age. It is one of the best movies of all time. It's so great. It rules. Shit. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was the first R-rated movie I went to see without my parents when I was underage. I was at summer camp, this camp called Camp Dudley, which is on Lake Champlain in upstate New York, the oldest continuously run all-boys camp in America. And I had a, a mixed experience there, although generally very good. But once a term, I don't know what you call it, they would take us to the local mall which they would bus all these campers to, and you could go to the food court. You know, it's like you go to summer camp. It's like the one taste of the outside world you get. And I and a bunch of other very much more confident than I, 16-year-olds, quote-unquote, snuck into, by which I mean paid to see, <laughs> despite <laughs> not being old enough to go see an R-rated movie, to see Terminator 2. And it was absolutely not the kind of movie that I would have gone to see either. And I just was blown away by it in the theater, also feeling like, you know, a Terminator-like total badass because I, you know. You paid money for goods and services? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure the 17-year-old the working the box office was like, yeah, all right, I don't care. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always kind of marveled movies and media and stuff like that would treat seeing an R-rated movie like it was 
unbelievable for a child to do. Because, yeah, when I was a kid, it meant nothing. And they were like all I watched. <laughs> My parents would take us to see R-rated movies all the time. I mean, all the time. Yeah. So it was not a big deal just to go see an R-rated movie. But doing it without a parent or guardian present was whew, pretty hardcore. Yeah, you felt like you were doing an infiltration mission, like armed guards would surround you if you revealed your age at any point. <laughs> I was legitimately terrified. There is no rule so stupid that I won't feel bad for breaking it. <laughs> and it's like, it's an R-rated movie. Oh, and I still get goosebumps thinking about the nerve it took for me to go see that. What a close shave. Beautiful. Yeah. To get back to your point, Jory, Layton, it is a great film. It may be you know, up there with Aliens as the preeminent, like, action blockbuster, especially 80s, but actually be a good film. I haven't seen Aliens either. I think we've talked about that on the show, that I haven't seen Aliens. I didn't remember that. I think Aliens in its way is a really good movie, but I find it really hard to watch just because I think it's too militaristic, I guess. Definitely. I get what they're doing. It's just, like, not for me. Makes me feel like I'm being a big contrarian that I like the first one so much more. But yeah, the kind of returns diminish on that franchise, as everybody knows anyway. I think it's a pretty good analogy between Terminator and Terminator 2 and Alien and Aliens. I mean, not a coincidence that we're talking about James Cameron films here either. But, you know, they went from kind of a low budget first film. Was Alien low budget? It probably wasn't super high budget. Yeah, I mean, the sets look nice. But then they were massive hits. and spawn these like even bigger hit blockbusters the story about the pitch meeting because i mean obviously cameron didn't direct the first one like he did with terminator right the story of the pitch meeting of aliens is that cameron is in the room they have like a whiteboard where the pitch starts and he wordlessly writes on the board alien the title of the film he's pitching a sequel to and then he writes an S, aliens, <laughs> what a sequel. And then he draws a vertical line through the S, <laughs> a dollar sign. As far as the story goes, that was basically the entire pitch. I am getting such deja vu from this. I feel like last time you were on this show, we talked about this exact thing. I could be completely wrong. I don't think so. We didn't. Okay, good. We've been having a great time. Both times. I really wonder what the efficacy of that pitch would have been if instead of the dollar sign, it was just like, okay, I'm going to draw three vertical lines next to each other and then three more right below and then we're going to connect with a little little diagonal. It's, it's aliens with the Stussy S is what I'm, is what I'm trying to... <laughs> I think Fincher tried that in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it didn't work out with Seven. I saw Alien Cubed in the theaters as well. Oh. Yeah. With my needle-phobic cousin... Who, uh -oh. Yeah, when there's a very, very large needle on screen injecting, I think Ripley, was not a popular thing. And she was very upset. Yeah, I, I, I bet. I remember I saw, speaking of R-rated movies as a child, I went with friends to see Alien Resurrection, which was, ah. even as a child, there's that age in your young life where you're starting to get just disillusioned enough that you figure out that something can be bad and you can have bad time. Oh, yeah. Audrey's there right now. Oh, no. <laughs> I remember having a conversation about how it was like, that wasn't what I thought it would be. There was yeah. like, I think that in my mind, that movie is so, and it probably isn't. I'm probably being really ungenerous, but I think I confused that movie with Jason X. 
What? Hold on. You don't mean that when you went to see it, you thought you were seeing Jason X. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're going to do a movie where Jason goes to space. It might not happen for another like six to seven years. But no, no. I mean, like in like retrospect, trying to think about it, because Resurrection, since they have like the child xenomorph human hybrid thing, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just like an infantile killer that's just like a brawny moron going around a spaceship killing people. It's like the exact plot of Jason X. <laughs> Jory, that's a really good point. Thanks. I remember being very excited for Alien Resurrection because I love those Junet and Caro films, especially City of Lost Children. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I like City of Lost Children a lot when I watched it in college, the time at which someone watches such things. Precisely. I believe that was also the last time I watched City of Lost Children. <laughs> but being very excited about Jean-Pierre Junet directing a big, like an alien, I love the alien movies, you know, after the disappointing alien cubed, it was like, all right, we got this cool director and he's directing an awesome franchise. And then you go see it and you're like, Oh, well, there's some cool ideas, I guess. Initially I was like, I don't know who the fuck you guys are talking about. I didn't realize it's fucking Amelie Delicatessen guy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and the other thing was like Jeanne and Caro were this pair and they did, all these things together. I believe Amelie 2, right? There's an Amelie 2? Yes, Amelie 2, Amelie in the City. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of went off the deep end with that one. Yeah, I think this was the first major thing he had done without Caro, at least that I knew about, which is not saying much. So I was maybe a little skeptical because of that. Not like I knew what their fucking partnership entailed or anything, but I remember being like, oh, just Junet on his own. Let's see what happens. Yeah. I really like that bit in Alien Resurrection where um, Xenomorph cracks the top of some creme brulee with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it does crack someone's skull open with its claws. I don't want to paint too much of a portrait of what kind of child I was like, but I think that was one of the only moments in the movie that I was entertained. <laughs> the suit in that movie is so silly looking that there's like a serious Power Rangers vibe as it like reaches out and just like places its hand around an actor's head And then there's a reaction shot of another character looking shook. And then it cuts back to the monster and there's just like red goo all over its hand. And it's like, all right. (laughs) God, I love red goo. The one scene in that movie I remember really liking was when she discovers that she they've tried to clone her a bunch of times. And she goes in that lab and there's a bunch of like deformed Ripley clones that has stuck with me. I don't remember that at all. God, what a beautiful thing. Honestly, this isn't even a segue. This is just me being like, I'm going to talk about another movie now. Do it. No, it's great. Have you guys watched Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves directed by Eli Roth? No, you have told me about it. (laughs) I know I've told you extensively about it. (laughs) Same. I got to show it to Allie for the first time the other night because we are both currently on a cyberpunk-induced Keanu Reeves thirst quest. Yeah, and Keanu kicks, yeah. Yeah, and that movie is, it's incredible. I, I think it might be like the platonic ideal of a perfect bad movie. It's Eli Roth and then Anna de Armas and then Eli Roth's wife. God. <laughs> and Keanu doing the worst job. <clears throat> you guys have seen the It Was Free Fucking Pizza monologue from that movie? Yes. I don't think I have. <laughs> this is culturally important for you to see, Tori. I think this is how I found out about the movie is someone linking to this monologue, yeah. Its reputation really precedes it because I had seen this for years and years, like on Tumblr, we always made rounds. And I thought that by the time that I watched the movie, it wouldn't kill me as much as it always has. And in context, it is arguably funnier. This is like the most he says the entire movie. 
Oh, the thumbnail is him yelling. This like Latter-day Keanu Reeves where he just looks like Dave Grohl. <laughs> yeah. Death. Death. Oh. You're going to kill me. You're going to fucking kill me. Why? I haven't watched this in forever. Why? Because I fucked you? You fucked me. You fucked me. You came to my house. You came to me. I got you a car. I brought you your clothes. You took a fucking bubble bath. You wanted it. You wanted it. You came out to me. What was I supposed to do? You sucked my cock. You both fucking sucked my cock. It was free pizza. Free fucking pizza. It just shows up at my fucking door. What am I supposed to do? We're flight attendants. Come on. Fuck us. No one will know. Come on. It can is hard to talk about because... I adore him and he rules, but watching this, it's so bad. And yet I found myself thinking this is some of the best work he's ever done. (laughs) So this is what really interests me about him. Some of those early Keanu performances are pretty tough. His performance in the matrix also while cool is not the best acted thing in the world. I think that movie has the Terminator two thing happening for it, where it's like, the right role for him. It's like yes. he, he can be kind of alien and aloof and robotic in that movie and it works. The first thing I ever saw him in had to be Bill and Ted, which he's legit great in, of course. I love that movie. But I remember him being a joke for years, years. And just in the last, I don't know, couple of years, maybe even year, the tide really seems to have turned on him. Actually, probably since John Wick is when it really happened. I think John Wick was the Keanu sans, yeah. Because he's great in those, too. It's just like on his bandwidth and he doesn't have to do all that much. Aside from the physical stuff, which he is incredible at. That's mainly what I'm talking about is that stuff. It's something I think he legit loves to do and is quite good at. The acting is fine, but the physical stuff I think he's fantastic at. Layton, do you disagree with this? I haven't seen the John Wick movies. My thing about Keanu Reeves is I think he's legitimately one of the worst actors in the world, but I love him. And the worse that he is at acting, the more I like him. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Dracula, Leighton? No, I haven't. Wow. Shit. He's so wonderful in it. It's a delight. What a brutal film in all the best ways. I've been meaning to watch that and Constantine for like over a year, just... Constantine is, it's got a lot of good qualities. And don't get me wrong, it's not a good movie, but it's super entertaining at times. I love Constantine. I agree. Objectively, from a filmmaking perspective, there's a lot of stuff you could do differently. Like you said, it's a really entertaining, fun movie. I also don't know anything about this character. So, you know, like, I understand there's probably a lot of stuff you would hate if you were a Constantine purist. Number one is that he's American in the film, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't started reading DC Comics at all when that movie came out. And so I just like, that is the canon Constantine for me. How could anything else be? And so him being like Cockney in the comics just doesn't compute for me at all. Yeah, me too, because I hadn't read any of the comics. I've since read a few of the trades, but not too much. Yeah. But I think that movie is great. It's really fun. I agree. Is it Billy Zane is the devil in that movie? I'm trying to remember. Uh, Peter Stormare is the devil. Oh, that rules. Is Billy Zane in the movie? Did I just invent that? Am I thinking of Titanic? (laughs) Yes, you're thinking of Titanic. I don't think Billy Zane is in the movie. Let's see. It's Rachel Weisz. Help me. (laughs) Tilda Swinton. Of course, Tilda Swinton is Gabriel. Shia LaBeouf. Yes, of course. I think that might be the first Shia LaBeouf movie, too. Michelle Monaghan is in it. Yes, of course she is. Yes, that's right. Is she also an angry wife in this? (laughs) I can only assume. Yeah, let's just say yes. She got typecast as angry wife, but she's so good at it. 
Jorg and I were talking about how Keanu is also terrible in cyberpunk, but it works and he's the best part of the game. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I was initially really put off by it in the first cutscene where he shows up. Oh yeah, totally. Beats the shit out of you. <laughs> it's clear that the game had problems with voice direction. So like sometimes <laughs> the line reads are a little funky, but for the most part, the voice acting, like if you're female V and it's V talking to Jackie, they're both really well acted and it all holds together. <laughs> and then Keanu shows up and it's just ridiculous. <laughs> so on my first playthrough that I still haven't finished, I played like the Corpo Life Path and I just started a Nomad playthrough last night. And like the discrepancy <laughs> in terms of quality, Corpo makes no fucking sense. And Nomad is like, oh yeah, okay. Th this structurally is so much better. <laughs> Keanu is clearly like, pretty much the raison d'etre, however you pronounce that, for the game. I think that game was pretty hyped up before the trailer that had him in it and the one that he ambled Frankenstein-like onto the stage <laughs> to announce at E3 or whatever. <laughs> he definitely does like bring the game to life, for sure. And when you initially meet him, it felt horrible to me. It's like, oh no, are we really doing this? You mean the part where he beats the shit out of you or where you're like playing as him? I mean, I guess both. That's kind of like the early part of the game. Yeah. I think that his performance, it works. And this is maybe something that works so well about like Neo and things like that, kind of in that same Terminator 2 way that like it kind of seemingly accidentally informs the Johnny character and makes him into a guileless dork who's not really as brave and cool as he puts on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really funny. And it seemingly, it might be completely unintentional, but it's great. Sure, as with most quality things about that game, it seems like it's unintentional. But yeah, it's just so charming and I enjoy it so much. I haven't played any of the endings yet and I know that they're all terrible. So looking forward to that. I've heard really weirdly mixed things about like the endings and the way the RPG elements of the game actually resolve. I've seen some people actually be really glowing about it. I hope this isn't a spoiler for you or for any other gamers that like, I think it does a fallouty like- Hold on, wait, Jory, 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 stop. Let me give a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right, continue. The game has an ending. That was the- <laughs> You can't say that. <laughs> oh shit. I think this is actually a good time to pause because we need to pause for a word from our sponsors. So we have a returning sponsor. Uh, Bluetooth range extenders who we haven't heard from in a while. They've agreed to come on and sponsor the show again. So let's pause here for an ad break from our sponsor. Brian, have you, have you not been getting the emails from Bluetooth range extender? Uh, no. I don't think we're CC'd on that. You guys don't know about the case? Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I was not supposed to be doing that ad read, you guys. Uh, well, maybe we should pause instead for a word from their legal representative. Can you get him on the horn? All right. Yeah. Uh, let's go for that. <laughs> oh, my heart is racing right now. All right. Hold on. I'm, I'm just going to dial up them. Di dial up them. Dial them up on the phone here. Hello, Bluetooth range extenders. Wait, am I the Bluetooth range extender guy now? I don't know what the boundaries of this bit are. Jory, I swear to fucking God, do this bit. <laughs> I threw you in here <laughs> without telling you. We could revel in how it's not working or keep going. What do you guys want to do? Oh, it's me, the legal representation for Bluetooth range extender. I'm very mad at you. 
It's <laughs> <This is> awful. <laughs> Brian, that was a pure bit ambush. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I wanted it to be. I was curious what would happen. Jory is a trooper under pressure. I mean, that last Bluetooth range extender ad was really, truly incredible. And this one, I would argue, is even better. Are we rolling into it? I don't know. <laughs> Jory, do you want to do this? You, you are free to say no. I already said the thing about me being in trouble. I don't know how much clearer I can make this. If this gets edited and put out, I'm done. <laughs> this is catastrophic. Jury, what are you being held liable for? I had nothing to do with that IP. Bluetooth isn't supposed to be extended. That's not what it was designed for. Do you know what could happen? If the Bluetooth Council finds out about this? <laughs> the Bluetooth Council. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> what is it? The IPCC? <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because I just got a renewal notice from BluetoothRangeExtenders.com <laughs> for that URL. And I was like, if I can force Jory to do this bit again, then I can justify paying whatever it is, 15 bucks for another year of BluetoothRangeExtenders.com. But if not, I probably won't renew it. The swing I took for a second beat on that joke was me being afraid about the repercussions of the fake ad, and that didn't work out. So I can just do another fake ad if that's what we want to do. Well, what do you feel like? I, I, I'm happy to do anything. It really doesn't matter. I need to think of an angle. Leighton, I also love the idea of bit ambush. That's a good bit. Where we, <laughs> without warning, we don't tell guests we're going to do it. We throw them into some stupid situation and just see if it works. I like that. This is a level of antagonism that is the kind of energy we should be bringing into 2021. I mean, that's what we do every week with What's Poppin', isn't it? I don't like that you're using we, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know what sort of royal we situation. That's a classic late night bit ambush. All right, I think I'm game. All right, I'll set this up again. Or Leighton, why don't you set it up this time? This is a bit ambush on me. <laughs> <laughs> we have to keep like all of this in. <laughs> I'll do it. It was your fucking idea. You do it. Don't you know how I work? I come up with these ideas and then I tell someone else, why don't you do it? <laughs> and that is how I get anything done. You know, it would be great if we had chocolate chip cookies right now. Rachel, do it. Jeez. Yeah, that Well, that makes me sound like bean dad. Am I right? Stop. That's fucking timely as hell. Hell yeah. <laughs> and on a podcast, no less. Classic bean dad 2021 reference. Ryan, you, you can't make that joke because I'm on a podcast with you and I'm up to be the replacement for Alex Trebek on Jeopardy and a child wanted beans <laughs> and now I'm not going to be <laughs> the host of Jeopardy. <laughs> Do you think he's actually in trouble? Do you think that's actually going to hang over him. It's less the Bean Dad Association and more the people have yet again dug up old tweets that are uh, problematic. Yeah, totally. It feels like Jennings is at a juncture where he could bail on the dude and be fine. Jennings juncture, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good children's show. I mean, there's been such a significant backlash against Jennings in the last couple of weeks that I'd be surprised if they gave Jeopardy to him at this point. People seem legitimately mad. And I mean, I don't know how many of those were Jeopardy watchers anyway, so do they care? I don't know. But I don't think Jennings is going to get the job uh, partially because of what happened. But what the fuck do I know? It makes me think of the iconic film, possibly my favorite, The Wedding Singer. Oh, did you say possibly? Please tell me you said possibly. Yes, I did. Yes. I love jokes about spaghetti, rigatoni, rotini. Or 
The possibilities are endless. Bucatini. Oh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Bucatini, did you read this article about the Bucatini shortage? I did read the article about the Bucatini shortage. What? As a Bucatini enthusiast, it's the superior type of pasta. Oh, is that the long tube? Yeah, it's the long tube. I'd never even heard of it. I didn't even know what it was until I read this article. What the fuck? You've never had Bucatini? Not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> the sauce retention, Brian. Layton, I get it. If I see Bucatini, I'm going to try it. But I've always been a rigatoni man myself. And maybe that's just from a childhood of growing up with ziti and small, like large opening tube-shaped pastas as my favorite. Yeah. I generally don't like noodles, like long noodles that much. But after reading this Bucatini article, I'm... You got Bucatini pilled. <laughs> <laughs> I got re red sauce. Pilled. There's an article that's about, like, why can nobody find Bucatini anymore? And it's a deep dive on FDA shit and why there is a great Bucatini shortage and cover-up of the Bucatini shortage. Yes. There's a cover-up? Well... Is there a Bucatini council? Did we cut the last time I mentioned a council? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great article, actually. I thought it was fantastic. So she is a Bucatini fan, can't find it, and then casually mentions it to someone, and they're like, in a different city, and they're like, I can't find it either. And then she mentions it to someone else in a different city, like a month later or whatever. I think it might have been her mom. And her mom was like, I can't find it either. And then pieces together that there's been a major supply disruption in Bucatini and gets to the bottom of it. It's a lot of her harassing pasta reps who are increasingly exasperated with this woman who keeps asking about where the Bucatini is. Anyone listening, if you're able to find Bucatini and you haven't had it already, I just implore you to open your hearts, open a long, skinny hole in your heart for you to have maximum sauce retention of, you know, spaghetti carbonara with bucatini instead of like regular spaghetti. Ooh, baby, that's the stuff. Anyway, we we're going to do a bit and then we like glossed over this bit that we spent 10 minutes trying to get into. Yeah, now we've spent 10 minutes talking about it that make it virtually impossible to cut out the botched attempt at the bit. <laughs> and now I don't want to do it anymore just to be annoying. No, <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you, Brian. Jory, Brian, somebody. I don't know if you guys... Wait, what's the point of even doing this setup? The audience has heard us try and fail to do it. Do it, Jory. You guys, I got an email from my promotional sponsors at BluetoothRangeExtender.com, and they actually wanted me to come back here and give you guys another uh, another promo copy. So um, do you guys, uh, I don't know, is it about time for an ad break? I mean, I, I could probably get into that if you want. The podcast is recorded chronologically, right? Of course. Every week in the show, we do ad breaks, as our listeners know. And I think this is as good a time as any. We're... 45 minutes in, so that's about one-sixth of the running time of this podcast. And I think that's a good time for an ad break. All right. We'll be right back with more uh, Late Night with Jory Griffiths. <laughs> Pat! Pat, everybody! Welcome back! Um, uh, my name's Jory. I'm here to talk to you about Bluetooth Range Extender. You're going to love it. Uh, is your Bluetooth not going through a piece of paper? If you're trying to talk on a call on a Bluetooth and your arm gets raised and it separates between your phone and your headset and you can't hear yourself talk for another 10 minutes after that because of the way it disconnects, Bluetooth Range Extender can't do anything about that. And we're very sorry. Instead, uh, it's gonna make your Bluetooth go another one foot, another two foot, another two foot. That's as far as it goes. BluetoothRangeExtender.com, you're not gonna believe the increase in quality in your ability to go another two foot. Have a great day. I love you, bye-bye. <laughs> excellent picture i mean excellent ad wink wink fully real everyone use promo code um jory to get 
$2 off your BluetoothRangeExtender.com. Yeah. And remember, um, Jory is spelled U-M-M-M-M-J-O-R. J-O-R. <laughs> you got it. You heard me. J-O-R. In Dracula, Keanu Reeves does an English accent. Yes, I remember this. It's awful. Oh, I would have assumed he would be so good at it, just like he's so good at acting and everything else. <laughs> well, also, I mean, we're burying the lead here. You know who's in Dracula, right? Dracula? A little guy known as Tom Waits. Oh, shit! Really? He's Renfield. Yeah. He's Renfield, and he eats bugs. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. They tried to get him to stop. He kept doing it. Honestly, <laughs> anytime Tom Waits shows up on screen acting in something, I'm on board. Yeah, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, awful movie. Tom Waits is the devil, though, so redeemed. Right. He's also in Mystery Men. And Wrist Cutters, right? I don't remember Mystery Men at all. Mystery Men was, at the time, it was one of those films where it felt like a great movie that was buried inside a perfectly fine movie. Yeah, which feels like maybe that's a final edit thing. I feel like it was because it has all these really funny people in it. Janine Garofalo, Ben Stiller, Hank Azaria, Tom Waits, of course, a <laughs> bunch of other people. And Ben Stiller is like the ostensible lead Mr. Furious. It's got Greg Kinnear as Captain Amazing. Oh, spoiler alert for Mystery Men. Do you want to set that up, Brian? Yeah, okay. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> There's like a Raiders of the Lost Ark bit, or maybe it's more Last Crusade, where Greg Kinnear turns into a skeleton. <laughs> he turns into a skeleton? Really? I don't remember that. I remember him dying. If I remember correctly, yeah. Actually, to me, one of the most interesting parts of the movie is they set him up. You know, he's like the the good, the real superhero, essentially Homelander. Yeah. He's Homelander before Homelander. <laughs> And then he gets captured by a bad guy. You know, it's supposed to be some kind of like easy, stupid thing. And then whatever it is, two thirds of the way through the movie, they straight up murder him and he dies. And it's great. Tight. I love it. I've literally not once ever heard of this movie. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know why you would have. Like it's probably it came out in 90, 96, 97, maybe. It was 99. And at the time, obviously before all the Marvel shit, there were not many superhero movies uh, beyond Batman Beyond. Oh, a simpler time. Do you see what I did? Batman Beyond wasn't a movie. <laughs> it was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but having like these comedy people doing a superhero movie, I remember being very, very excited. And then you watch it and you're like, that's funny. It's not great. What's that one with uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor, the sci-fi send up? Home Improvement. Yeah, uh, I remember people being, because, you know, you didn't see a lot of really deconstructive meta stuff on TV like you did with that show. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, Galaxy Quest is what you're talking about, which is great. That's something about that movie is like, it might have been the age that I was, but those two movies, I feel like they were out on video kind of in a similar time frame. It could have been years apart. No, that feels right. I remember watching Galaxy Quest and feeling like it was a Mystery Man type of thing where it was just like, okay. Galaxy Quest was one of those movies I walked into with, like, zero expectations. In fact, worse than zero. Like, this is going to be bad. And I think is so successful as a sci-fi parody in so many ways that it's honestly, I think, one of the best examples of the genre, especially Star Trek specifically, which is what they're riffing on. It's a delightful movie. Alan Rickman is amazing. He is amazing. 
Tony Shaloub. Oh, yeah. It's one of the rare things where Tim Allen is watchable. Yeah, it's it's just that and Santa Claus 3. <laughs> I've never seen any of the Santa Claus movies. Should I? I'm a shill for short, so I would say go for three and then watch Clifford. Yeah, oh, well, Jory, if you think I don't love Clifford, <laughs> oh, I love Clifford. I will watch anything and everything with Martin Short in it. Yeah, he's great. Clifford is one of those movies, too, where at the time, that movie got savage. Oh, yeah, totally. Layton, do you know Clifford? Like the big red dog Clifford or? Oh, Layton, what I wouldn't give to be you right now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Discovering a universally reviled film. I think it's legitimately funny. Oh, yeah. Martin Short's performance in it is really funny and good. So the, the deal with Clifford is that Martin Short, an adult man, plays a child. And there's no like particular makeup or effects or whatever. It's just Martin Short playing what, like a 10-year-old or something? Yeah. Is he even doing like the dwarf thing? Like, is he walking around on his knees? Not as I recall. He's just five foot 10. Yes. And it also, it opens in the future when he's in like some kind of monastery or something. Oh, yeah. It is very, very, very funny in just a bananas way. It's a real swing. And I think it kind of works. Wow. Yet again, I have never heard of this seems like a disaster. The kind of bit of the movie that's like the backbone of the story and the performance is that Clifford is like, first of all, who's the lead? Second of all, what's his relationship to Clifford? You're referring to Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin, yeah. One of the all-time great middle-aged, comically angry white guys (laughs) in film playing largely the same character as in Midnight Run which is another great film. He's one of those people for someone around my age who there's just like literally no way I would know who he is or what he did. He just vanished, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think he did other stuff behind the scenes and became less of an actor. I think he was also the dad in the Beethoven movies. Yeah, he was. But he's a writer and like kind of a comedy guy. I think he had a talk show for a while too. But he was one of those like guys who's probably in his mid to late 60s now who did a lot of stuff in Hollywood, but never had like major breakout fame. I love him. I think he's very funny in everything he does. He does this like barely simmering rage kind of thing that then erupts very, very well. And Clifford is a fantastic example of this. I can't remember his relationship to Clifford if he's his... It's like his nephew or something. Yeah. There's a real art to people who can do the simmering rage super well. For me, that's like Tim Heidecker and Glenn Howerton are so pro. Uh-huh. It's veins popping anger. The Tim Heidecker version of it is funny because it's so real. Yeah. Like this like impotent man rage is so funny. Yeah. I will go to bed sleeping every night knowing I did what was right for this show. You go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, everyone listening, I entreat you, please watch on the cinema. It is the best in the world, please. Jory, you do some great impressions. And this is I'm not setting up a bit here. I just want to tell you that I really enjoy your impressions. Brian, that's so generous. They are very spot on and extremely funny. Even when you're doing it like subtly and you're not even like fully committing to the impression, it's like you just have like a very deft knowledge and ability to convey that stuff. That's very kind. Thank you. Would it surprise you if I told you that I, as a child, had poor social skills (laughs) and became what we like to call a class clown in order to try to gain any amount of social acceptance and avoid being a pariah. I don't know what that's like. I want to hear 
more about your class clown antics. So tell me what a young Jory was like. Did you do any stuff that got you in trouble? Like did teachers like you or did they not? No, as a really little kid in like elementary school, I had to walk the delicate line between being a complete teacher's pet and being funny to try to gain acceptance. And I feel like um, it was in like junior high school and high school that I started actually actively not giving a shit and getting in trouble and sleeping through classes and stuff like that, Hmm. which was one of my trademark bits. (laughs) Falling asleep in minute one and then waking up a minute before the next class started. It always kills, yeah. When I was in elementary school, to the extent that I did bits and things like that, it was just like chiming in, probably because I had watched like Mystery Science Theater. I wish I remembered any of these bits, but I acted like I was like the peanut gallery while the teacher was giving lessons. It's like the most like sweet child. Like when I try to imagine, my skin is crawling right now trying to think about what I must have said and done because it must have been so fucking bad. But kids loved it and it made me tolerable to them. And then like you kind of go through the transition in like, seventh grade and ninth grade when you're going to new schools and everything where people don't know you. So you get bullied endlessly for like six months and your life is a living hell again as it was. And then (laughs) you kind of reacclimate to being somebody who everybody knows is a harmless dork who will pitch in bits and is really game for stuff. I love that that last 30 seconds you describe as a universal experience when I suspect it is not. But a lot of people have gone through it. I suspect most people aren't going to like new schools and stuff, right? I don't know. Is it really common for there to be like K through 12 schools that are all in one building? For me, at least it was like the districting of based on where you lived, you would probably be with like the same set of kids through middle school and high school. So it's sort of like a different building, but you know, mostly the same people. That was my experience, yeah. I feel like at every step of that process, twice my best friend would end up going to a different school and I would hardly ever see them again and stuff like that. I feel like that was a pretty normal thing for me. That shit's a real bummer. I remember the redistricting hitting me really hard because I had to switch elementary schools and, you know, only half of my friends went blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Yeah. Anyway. This is kind of similar to the level of game that I am for bits. Acting like Bluetooth range extender isn't a real product that I'm actually shilling and is actually something I'm in trouble for. But I remember like it was around Halloween and I had a Halloween costume that involved me wearing a skateboard helmet as like part of the costume. And I remember being in the hallway outside of a class waiting for class to start and thinking to myself, while I'm wearing this helmet, I could ram full speed into the steel lockers here in the hallway and I'll be fine. So I fucking whipped back and full speed ram my head into... Head first? Oh, yeah. Top of skull into locker. And you know what? It didn't work. It didn't feel good. And then a couple other kids came by who I didn't know, but they were like, ah, do it again, do it again. And so, of course... Well, then you got to. You're complicit and you immediately do. And I'm pretty sure I had like a nauseous headache for the rest of the day. You concussed yourself. Uh Uh-huh, totally. Did you have long hair at this point? Because I know that you had long hair for like a significant period of time. Before college, I had shaggy late 90s shoulder length. And then it got longer after that. The ponytail was in college. (laughs) Oh, hey. Got a couple of college ponytail bros. Wait, did we all 
have college ponytails? Yes. Yes. I don't want to project too many ideas about gender or anything, but I think it's a little less humiliating that Leighton had a ponytail in college. Yeah. Did you have a ponytail before college, Leighton? In high school, my hair was like chin length. So it was only like longer and me dying at ridiculous colors because mentally ill and in art school. So yeah, you know, the ponytail came back in college. Yeah. And Jory, did you have a ponytail in high school at all? I did not. No, it was like year one of college. It, it began. Dude, same, 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 same. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? This is the kind of liberal think tank stuff that colleges are just really shoving onto the children, just brainwashing. You need ponytails. Inculcated with this liberal elite hairstyle, <laughs> the ponytail. Can I ask, Jory, do you look at pictures of yourself with long hair now and think, oh, that looked pretty good, or do you shudder? You know the answer to that question, Brian. <laughs> Yeah. And again, I worry that I'm projecting. Do you look at pictures of that time and think to yourself, hey, I looked pretty good? Or do you shudder? Oh, no. No. I, I, I look at myself in college and think, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> so this was a time for me, and I feel like I may have talked about this before in the podcast, when I cannot remember actively worrying about what I was wearing. Like, I would literally just go pick whatever out of a drawer and throw it on. Hmm. And not not like I spend a lot of time fussing over my wardrobe these days either, but I am more aware of what image I am projecting with what I wear. In college, by my junior year, I had hair down to my waist, big round glasses. I wore big baggy jeans and Tevas with socks, often a T-shirt tucked into the jeans with no belt. <laughs> But actually, I would only tuck the T-shirt in in the front of the jeans because I didn't like the way the button felt when it was pressing against my skin. Hmm. And then usually wearing a large Oxford shirt over it. Wow. College is also when I became cuckoo for cords. I was wearing corduroys nonstop exclusively. That was when I stopped wearing jeans. Oh, wow. I've never returned to wearing jeans. Ever since like high school, just been pretty much exclusively jeans. Occasionally khakis, but not often. Yeah, it's interesting. I know very few people at this point who are like jeans wearers. I know many people who are staunchly anti-jeans. I'm wearing jeans right now. Love some jeans. It must be a contrarian culture clash kind of thing. <laughs> like people my age, our dads were exclusively jeans all the time. Did you have a Dockers dad, Brian? I had a Dockers dad. <laughs> I absolutely did because he had a clothing store that sold, wait for it, Dockers. Wow. And so we got pretty much all of our clothes from the store because they were quote unquote free, by the way, everybody, I'm not saying he stole from his own store. You know, we just like could pay wholesale or whatever for them. Yeah, it was his inventory. Yeah, It was his inventory. So at least my father and I, they only started selling women's clothes when I was in like junior high or something. So it wasn't as available to my mom and sister, but my dad and I would wear clothes like exclusively from that store for most of my childhood through when the store closed in like late high school, early college for me. It was like, well, they're selling Lee jeans. Great. Acid washed. Yes, please. <laughs> I remember wearing a pair of pants from that store that had the flap. When you unbutton pants, there's two sides that come together. One of those was diagonal and it was like a statement. And I remember putting it on and being like, I am a fucking edgelord right now because of how badass this diagonal flap on these jeans makes me look. I can't imagine what you're talking about. So where the zipper is, like the fly on a pair of pants, whatever, take that and now turn it so that it's like at a 45 degree angle from the vertical. Okay. So that flap, instead of being straight up and down, goes diagonally. Wow, that's so cool. 
It's so cool, Layden. Is that like a retro-futurist thing? Like, did you feel like you were Han Solo? <laughs> I felt like I was in Total Recall. Yeah, yeah. That's like truly the first thing I thought. Like the rainbow-colored jacket from Back, Back to, to the, the Future 2. <laughs> yes. It's like updating modern clothes in one silly way to try to feel like it's like a new vision of what fashion is going to look like. <laughs> By the way, Jory, I feel so of a kind with you. The fact that as soon as you said rainbow colored jacket, <laughs> we said back to the future too at the same time. That was a beautiful thing. <laughs> My version of the, you know, real like future fashion was same Darth Vader t-shirt every day that was from Hot Topic, <laughs> like low rise, like flare jeans, with a long skirt on top of it. <laughs> oh, you did Whoa. the jeans and skirt thing. Yeah, folks, the mid-aughts were a strange time. Yeah, that, lots of layering, so many Star Wars shirts. The thing is, is that I didn't feel cool. I think even at the time, I was like, this is pretty whack. Yeah, I've never felt actually cool, including now. Same. But I remember the first time I saw someone do the jeans and skirt thing, it was someone on the subway in New York. And I was like, what is happening <laughs> right now? It was very confusing. Why would you wear two pants? I need to look at pictures of jeans and skirt right now just to feel better about my current fashion. Just to feel less alone. I love that the first suggestion of like other stuff that you want to look up is Hannah Montana. <laughs> Just really pioneering the trend. Hannah Montana crosses the cultural threshold where I know literally nothing about it. As it should be. I would be suspicious of you if you knew more about Hannah Montana than that, basically. Yeah, fair point. Wow, people still do this. Really? I thought society had progressed past the need for this. All I'm getting are images of women in, like, jean skirts. You got to adjust your search terms a little bit. I see some jeans, but whatever. Who fucking cares? It's the dumbest shit in the world. I Googled jeans and skirt. Jeans and skirt isn't the right thing to Google here. Jeans with skirt. I remember seeing women especially, it was like jeans and kind of like sort of boho skirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm describing. Yeah. That was my vibe. Oh, boy, even the iconic outfit Elliot Page wears in Juno, uh, skirt over jeans. There it is. Yeah, I haven't watched that movie in forever. I think I remember the story, but not a lot of things about the vibe. Aside from the iconic hamburger phone. <laughs> I remember the vibe, but not the story. <laughs> <laughs> I remember J.K. Simmons being like, love that guy. Who's that dude? Yeah, I think I already knew him as J. Jonah Jameson. You're probably right, yeah. Is it Jason Bateman in that movie? Yep. He is, yeah. I believe Jennifer Garner play the would-be adoptive parents. I remember that movie had a couple of little screenwriting tricks that really frustrated me, but I was at the exact right age to be really taken under by the beat about Jason Bateman that I think really works, where like he turns out to be like a grooming asshole. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. totally. I was like at the perfect age to completely not see what was happening and love him and think he was the coolest. So that then when he turned out to be a prick, like the beat really worked on me. Yeah, yeah totally. A little bit of meta grooming. <laughs> <laughs> but you think that character was totally justified and you support everything he does. Are we not doing that? <laughs> I'm backpedaling further than that. A really important part of the jewelry story I'm realizing is um, I remember... A Hot Topic opened at the mall near me. And within a week, instead of wearing like exclusively plain color t-shirts and polos and stuff like that, I swaggered into the lunchroom wearing a, uh, a System of a Down Toxicity t-shirt. Oh, oh my oh. God. 
Wow. I'm pretty sure my imposter syndrome was already bad enough at the time that I did not think I was actually cool, but ooh, I pulled the wool over their eyes. I made them think I was. (laughs) Had you ever listened to System of a Down? Yeah, I did. I was actually cool. Don't get me wrong. It was imposter syndrome. I was fucking awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I think MTV's Return of the Rock was already out at this point, so I was familiar with System of a Down. (laughs) I remember... The hot topic makes me think of all the many mall stores that I was too scared to go into. Yeah, Spencer's. I was terrified. Same. Yeah. Was that just like a universal thing at a certain age? Just like you're very afraid to go into Spencer's. Oh, yeah. You walk more than two thirds into the store, you're going to be scandalized. Scandalized from several perspectives. The number one being taste. (laughs) Because that stuff is so off-puttingly stupid. I mean, maybe when you're like 10, you're like, (laughs) once you turn into a teenager, you're like, well, who finds this funny? Nobody likes this. A postcard with like a butt on it? There's like a really strained pun using the word crack on the inside or something like that? Yep. I remember a lot of golf-related bullshit. My dad, who legitimately thought this stuff was hilarious, got a postcard of Mount Rushmore front and back view. And the back was like, all the president's naked butts, like they were leaning over, resting their heads on Mount Rushmore, which I'm sure is a done-to-death thing. I'm laughing really earnestly. I'm extremely charmed by that, because at least that's not just like, I'm literally vividly remembering a shirt because I didn't know what any of the words meant at the time that I saw it, but it was just like, here's 10 things women are good for. And there was like, number one, tits. Number two, ass. Number three, pussy. And then like, then the rest of the numbers were blank. (laughs) This is real? Yeah. (laughs) I like vividly remember this. So I was like, what is tit? What is pussy? Question mark? The order was tits, ass, pussy? Yeah. The hierarchy is fucked. (laughs) But you gotta laugh, don't you? It's so funny. I can't think of a better, like, you know how in nature, if something's poisonous, it has really bright colors on it and shit? (laughs) That's the wardrobe equivalent of, like, a poison dart frog. (laughs) I like the idea of Jory's catchphrase being, you gotta laugh. (laughs) (laughs) A very half-hearted, you gotta laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, you're talking about there are other stores in the mall you were afraid of. Yes. Number one was Chess King. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You know, I was a, a nerd and I remember being in the mall and seeing the sign for Chess King and being like, oh, sweet, like a chess store. This seems awesome. And then I walked into it and it was a bunch of like clothes and I got very nervous and immediately left and then could never walk back into a Chess King. <laughs> Again, I fucking love the idea that you're just like, oh, I'm going to get some like nice rooks in here. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it'd be like a game store or like a puzzle emporium or something. Something the kind of store that was my speed. Yeah. (laughs) Puzzle emporium. And instead, I don't even know what kind of, is it a a men's and women's clothing store? I don't, I don't know anything about Chess King, but it definitely scared me. Yeah, that sounds horrifying. Yeah. I was very afraid of like Abercrombie and Abercrombie and Fitch because it's loud. And it smells bad. Well, and the entrances were always dark and scary. (laughs) It's like you're going on a dark ride at a theme park. Yeah. No, it's like you're going into Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. (laughs) Because they have this kind of, you know, building-like facade in front. And there's plants and shutters. Ooh, I didn't like that. Yeah, and it's all the animatronics are just shirtless, ripped men. Yeah, and then at the end, you get hit by a train and go to hell. (laughs) I had a friend that worked at an Abercrombie 
maybe this is common knowledge. It wasn't to me, but apparently what they would do is if you were a customer there and they thought you were hot enough, they would try to get you to work there. I think I remember that about Abercrombie. Wasn't that one of those chains where they had like draconian dress and appearance policies for the people who worked there? Yes. Yeah. Like you had to like cut the mustard to be the person who was like standing in the front, intimidating people like the three of us from wanting to go into the store. A hundred percent. Yes. They don't exist anymore, right? They went out of business. I was about to ask the same question, maybe more about like the broader cultural policy of being allowed to <laughs> treat the teenagers who work for your company like their product. Yeah. Also, the clothes are fucking ugly. Yeah, I agree. Why has Banana Republic been allowed to keep its name? Isn't that weird? <laughs> Abercrombie and Fitch still exists. They still sell shit. Oh my God. Aww. Do you remember the parody t-shirts? that said Pimpercrombie and bitch. No, I don't. Were they selling those at Spencer's next to the tits ass pussy shirt? Was that three quarters of the way into a Spencer's? That must be why I never saw it. <laughs> I love calling it three quarters of the way. Yes, it was right next to the Tommy Pull My Finger shirt with Beavis and Butthead on it. Because when you get to the final frontier of a Spencer's, that's where they sell the vibrators and shit. Yeah. They have sex toys? Oh, they have sex toys at Spencer's. I remember in college, my roommates and I went to start some shit at Spencer's. Start some shit. <laughs> Bought some fake septum rings, you know. As a college student with your roommates, going into the final frontier of a Spencer's and being like, oh, 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 numbing gel, neat. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was in like the mid to late aughts that they just became Hot Topic and now it's just been Hot Topic for the last 10 years. Yeah, because Hot Topic now is like, you guys like Disney? You want like an R2-D2 dress? Oh, yeah. So Spencer's is still the one that is like legit countercultural like Hot Topic was in the early 2000s. Was Hot Topic ever legitimately countercultural? No. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. It's the same parent company that owns American Eagle. Really? <laughs> They're extremely cynical. So after an hour and 30 minutes of this show where we've repeatedly said our guest names, I guess who has already been on the podcast and is frequently talked about on said podcast, uh, Welcome to Late Night with Brian Wecht, which is a bullshit show for bullshit people by bullshit people. Sorry to call you bullshit people, everyone who said hey. that. I think I just made a lot of enemies just then. It was really easy. <laughs> like that was maybe the most efficient way I could have offended literally everyone in this quote-unquote room and also listening. Hi, I'm Leighton. The other voice is Brian. Hi. Mystery guest whose name that we don't know. Who the fuck are you? Hello, I'm Jory. Hi, Jory. Hi, Jory. Okay, enough about you, Jory. I want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, Leighton, your thing that you just said reminded me of a thought experiment I frequently do, and I'd like you to join me in this. So here's the game, okay? How can you with the smallest number of actions, permanently alienate the most friends. Did we do this during a live show or something? Because we've had this discussion before. Yes, we did it during a live show. That's exactly right. We've had our audience answers, but I think also both of us have had answers that we would never say in public. <laughs> That's 100% true. I specifically remember what yours was. Yes. And the trepidation with which you said it. The rules are you can't murder anybody. More broadly, you can't commit any crimes. You just have to do something deeply uncool. Or be a sex pervert. Yeah, you just have to do something that is a very bad idea, but doesn't break any, like, laws or whatever, moral codes or something, but I guess that's debatable. The fewest steps between point A and point B of ruining as many connections as possible, right? Yes, that's right. And you're right. 
I should have realized that I cannot say mine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anybody could truly say theirs is the thing about this thought experiment. Like it's inherently not good for public consumption. And also because if you talk about it between friends, the true thing that it would be would be something that you would be too afraid to tell your friends, right? Yeah, something unconscionable. That's the whole premise. Yes. I think that it would be if you came into a group in a physical circle when in 2025, when we're able to do that, wearing a MAGA hat and everybody like tries to act like it's a funny joke and you act like it's a funny joke, but then you just keep wearing it. Wearing a what hat? A MAGA hat. (laughs) The internet dropped out and I heard you say a man hat. And I was like, (laughs) what? What does that even mean? Yeah, you know, the hat made out of the scalp of another man. Yes. It turns out there's one place where I have like deep gendered misgivings and it's about hats. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking exclusively about a trilby, <laughs> the only kind of hat that is acceptable for a man to wear. Don the flesh yarmulke. <laughs> uh. Uh, I mean, there's literally a Curb Your Enthusiasm bit where it's like Larry David starts wearing a MAGA hat so people won't talk to him, but then everybody gets really upset. It's like, what's going on with you? (laughs) I have been watching much of that show for the first time recently. Have we talked about this? I had never watched it, and I only started watching clips of it on YouTube because just some stupid, awful bullshit happened. And in my head, like all day, it just kept doing the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme, just Mm self-mockingly. And I was like, you know what? I've never watched anything from Curb Your Enthusiasm, and so I was just watching clips on YouTube. I should probably watch it. Is it good, Brian? Is it good? (laughs) The answer is, yeah. I'd I'd seen a bunch of episodes from early seasons before. I've been working my way through it slowly, and I just started season five. It is very, very funny. And I know this is an untrue statement, but I'm just going to say it. I cannot imagine anyone not at least partially Jewish enjoying this show because it is the most Jewish thing I have ever seen on air. That's a big part of why I love it because all of these people remind me of people I grew up with, like my uncle and cousins and and stuff like that. My dad's friends were a bunch of middle-aged Jewish guys from Jersey. So all of these people are similar. My dad's friends were not like aggressive people, but that kind of vibe is exactly, exactly what I grew up with. And The show is so deeply unflattering to Jewish people. (laughs) Obviously, Larry David is supposed to be a monster in the show, as are many of the people he associates with. But it just seems that you have to be so versed in that kind of culture to, like, get what they're doing. I don't understand how the Goyim can watch this and enjoy it. But I know plenty of people do, so, like, clearly people are. But to me, that show has probably caused a lot of anti-Semitism. That's a really interesting take, yeah. It is not a flattering portrait of Jews, but it is very, very funny. I like it. Honestly, a lot of my enjoyment of that show comes from my parents' enjoyment of it. They were only alive through the first several seasons, but my dad thought it was like the greatest thing ever. And there's an episode where, so Larry is married to a a Christian woman in the show and her parents are there and they bake Christmas cookies And they make like a nativity scene out of cookies. And Larry eats the baby Jesus cookie. (laughs) And I remember my mother having giggling fits over this. She thought this was the funniest thing that she had ever seen, ever seen. And she would just be like walking through the house and she would just stop and start cracking up and going, he ate the baby Jesus. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's a delight you know that episode was pretty recent in the ones i watched and my mom's been dead for 14 years now but i was just like man this is something my parents loved like deeply loved in the last few years of their life so that show is is meaningful to me too not only is it funny but it's a little bit of connection with my folks wow that's really charming the last season that i actually watched was spoiler alert are the Cheryl and Larry are divorced season and the Seinfeld reunion season the same season or are those two different seasons? I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. So oh, I'm sorry. No, I was generally aware of that. Yeah. I just watched the producers season, season four. Okay. That season has like the best they ever did at having like a season arc. It's so good. Honestly, the end of that, when you get to see Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft together, just like in the bar laughing. That couple is fantastic. I love Mel Brooks. He is one of my comedy heroes, has been forever. He was my father's absolute favorite. And watching him and Anne Bancroft together in this bar just for a couple minutes on screen, and she died probably not long after that. It was one of those things where I just lit up watching the two of them together because they are- That rules. They are beautiful together, yeah. Who is it recently who died? Was it Carl Reiner that I'm thinking of? Yes, Carl Reiner died recently. When he died- we all found out that he and Mel Brooks had been eating TV dinners and watching TV together literally every night for the last, like, however many years. Yeah, that was something I remember I knew because I had heard, I don't, I forget who it was an interview with, and they would just get together. I think they watched Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune every night. That's so sweet. <laughs> and I remember, this is from a few years ago, uh, Mel saying that, he wouldn't give examples, but <laughs> he said, Carl likes to watch movies that have one of the following phrases in it. Secure the perimeter. <laughs> and you look like you could use some rest. <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing. That's so beautiful. Secure the perimeter. I remember the second one. I might be getting slightly wrong. But they had been friends for, fuck, 60, 70 years or something. And they just, they clearly deeply, deeply loved each other. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that was a really wounding story to read after he died. Uh, I think that the Seinfeld reunion season was the last one that I watched of the show. And then recently I tried to watch the first ep of the, what was at the time the most recent series? Probably 10 or... Yeah. I think I just like the show got a little too canny for me. It's something about it is like the balance between plotting and improv feels like it's off uh -huh. where like they have a really planned out premise for this high concept gag they want to do and the improv doesn't get them all the way there something feels off about it and i, I kind of stopped hmm. feeling like the show was super duper working except for when is it in season seven or eight or whatever that they introduce jb smooth's character and he is just like a breath of fresh air for the show because he's so fucking funny on that show yeah he rules I will say certainly the early seasons, like many things made 20 years ago, don't totally hold up. Yeah. Of course. There's a lot of questionable stuff in there from a variety of perspectives where you're like, ooh, uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Since we're an hour, 40 minutes in, we should show some mercy to our beloved producer, Jarek, and yeah. do some segments. We should. Do we want to blaze through some What's Poppins? Yeah, why the fuck not? Neat. So are you going to introduce your favorite fucking thing in the world, Brian? Yeah, here's the What's Poppin' theme song. 
poppin'? What's poppin'? Layton, what's poppin'? I can only describe my facial expression as pog. Wait, I don't know what that means. Troy, the last time you were on the show in episode two, the terrible curse of the what's poppin' bit was not a thing. I don't know what you're talking about, Layton. Don't gaslight me, Brian. I don't think I've heard the what's poppin' theme song before. Oh, fuck. Well, Jory, That's what, it, what did you... T- what did you think? Sincerely, I don't know quite how to react because is Pog that one Twitch emote? Yes, yes, yes. How do I know what Pog means, but you don't? I'm not connected to gamer culture anymore. Things have changed. Genuinely baffled. What the fuck? You're the biggest gamer I know. Yeah, you're the Pog champ. Oh. I did a close representation of what the Pog face looks like in the Zencaster. The image repeatedly being presented to us is a colon and then an O making the expression of a person who is wide-mouthed in shock and disbelief. Yeah, because it's important to note audience. Explain it to me, Brian, please. Okay, so l- let me tell you a little bit about my process in, in writing the What's Poppin' theme song. I'm going on my phone. I wrote this song. Probably, I think the first time we did What's Poppin' was episode three or four, when we had Ethan in as a guest. And we actually put him on the spot to come up with the name of the segment, which he did what's popping. And I was like, I need to make this music great, like really great. And so I took a step back, you know, like you need to do sometimes before you kind of focus in on a, an artistic project and just kind of thought about it. And I didn't write anything for a few days, just kind of let it bounce around in my head. And then I sat down and I was like, this is going to be the best thing I've ever done. And then I wrote it. So with that in mind, Jory, I want you to listen to it again. And when it's done, tell me what you think, okay? All right, ready? All right. Here it is. What's poppin'? Am I supposed to? What's poppin'? All right. What'd you think? Uh, How much work is Jarek going to be doing on this episode? (laughs) A lot. audience brian i'm I'm ruining your bit brian played the song the first time in zencaster and then that time did not play it so we almost got away with it kids we almost just slipped right past and instead here we are suffering once again through just an absolutely fucking interminable bit (laughs) brian what's popping i also wanted to intercede two things one i'm now confident i have heard the what's popping theme multiple times before and it's just that it's one of several themes that I've heard you produce that are similar to it. Am I mistaken about that? No, they all kind of sound the same. Okay. <laughs> B, I had a genuine smile across my face when you played it both times, both the first time and the second time when I kept rudely interrupting. That's fine. What's popping for me, okay, after literally months of slogging through it, I finally finished the USA trilogy by John Dos Passos, which I cannot recommend. Don't read it. I started it and I felt compelled to finish it. But I picked up and put down the last book called The Big Money for probably three months. And it's not a long book. It's like 450 pages. It took me forever just because I was so unmotivated to read this fucker. Don't read it. But the next book I picked up, which I just started yesterday, is fucking amazing. It's called God's Shadow, Sultan Salim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World by Alan Mikhail, who's a historian at Yale. And it is basically about the history of the Ottoman Empire. And it is like 
what was for many years touted as one of the best fiction books ever, USA by John Dos Passos. I could not, every page was a, a burden, it weighed a thousand pounds, could barely turn it. <laughs> God's Shadow, I'm like flipping through it. It is so compelling and interesting and well-written. And it's all this history I just didn't know, you know, roughly uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire. Sultan Selim comes into power, I think in the 1500s, maybe a little earlier. I can't remember the exact years, but it is a story of a major, major world power that does not get the due that it deserves. The crazy thing is the Ottoman Empire existed until the 20s. Well, it was around for 600-ish years. God. Uh, yeah, and for many, many years, especially around the time period that this book is about, was the dominant world power. Like, one of the points that this guy, Mikhail, makes early on is that you thought Europe, a bunch of little like fucking stupid warring cities were going to be the dominant world power when you have the Ottoman Empire. Are you crazy? And how exactly much of the world moved towards the European cultural dominance rather than Ottoman cultural dominance is a really interesting story. But the fact that we don't give a lot of credit to how much of the stuff that we take for granted now comes from Ottoman innovations is what this book is about. Can you give an example? I haven't even gotten to that part yet. <laughs> Keep us posted. I expect a uh, double space times New Roman 12 point font on my desk tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> One thing he was talking about was how the heirs of sultans would be picked. So generally what they would do is these sultans would have this huge harem of women, usually from all over. And in fact, if you could get into that harem, you had a potentially good life waiting for you, especially if you could give birth to the next heir. So what they would do is with each woman, they would have, I don't know about one kid, but one son. And once that woman gave birth to a son, she was his advocate and his teacher and essentially grooming him to be the next sultan. And then these mothers would like war these sons against each other because whoever became the next sultan would kill everyone else. What? Yep. So any heirs that were perceived as competition, once one of them took power, they would kill all of their brothers. <sighs> Metal as fuck. Yeah, which is nuts, which means that every time a sultan dies, there's this huge, like, familial succession war. And it depended, like, did the military have your back? Who were they supporting? Who were the former sultan's advisors supporting? But the point this guy makes is that rather than being like this pleasure palace kind of thing, you know, as you often see harems depicted today, they were really royal finishing schools. Interesting. Where most of what happened in a harem was basically training these kids, these boys, to be the next sultan. And only one of them would make it and then would kill everybody else. Wow. That's one paragraph so far of the book. <laughs> like every page has these bombshells where I'm like, what? Are you fucking kidding me? Amazing. I find myself wondering, like, if those kids knew that was a thing. No, they definitely knew that. They had a very high probability of being murdered. Yes. I think about the amount of pressure and fear that I feel when I'm preparing for a PowerPoint presentation. Dude, right? <laughs> yeah. Imagine living your whole life knowing that at some point you're either going to take charge or die. Yeah, either take charge and murder your family or die. So Salim's mother, I can't remember her name was sold to the Sultan. And you're like, oh, that's awful. And then he says, that sounds awful. But remember, if she wasn't sold to the Sultan, she'd be sold to some poor guy. Hmm. Uh. Yeah. Women didn't have a great time back then. 
It certainly seems. See, I'm shocked to hear that. Yeah, right. Would you think everything would be great? Everything ways. Yeah. Yeah, and it is now. Yeah, exactly. Hashtag girl boss, hashtag feminism, hashtag yes queen. Yes. Cool. Jury, what's popping? I don't consume a whole heck load of media lately, except for podcasts, which I don't want to advertise somebody else's podcast on this podcast. No, do it. You can do that. How dare you? Yeah. No, no, fuck that. Those other podcasts are incorrigible and people should only listen to this one. It was a test and you passed, Jory. <laughs> yes! If anybody else listens to other podcasts, just know that you're cheating on us. And I would really like to go to podcasts, couples therapy for anybody who is, you know, just dipping into a bunch of different podcasts right now. It's unconscionable. Some of the ones that I like are Patreon podcasts. And it's like, that is actively dividing the Patreon dollar, which is unacceptable. I listen to podcasts when I'm working on visual stuff. And when I'm working on non-visual stuff, and I kind of need to engage the parts of my brain that like either podcasts or even music with lyrics would upset. I have been listening constantly lately to ambient music. Hmm. Uh, what am I going to say? I'm a weirdo for Eno. I'm a hecker head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an Aphex fan, just like everybody else is. These are the official terms that their fandoms use, right? <laughs> yeah, that last one really didn't work. Aphex fan was so bad, it's great. <laughs> Thanks. Oniotrix point forever. What? Wow, that one really did not <laughs> <laughs> I think I dropped out. That's how much I didn't understand it. Oniotrix point never. I never know how to say his name, but he did the music for um, Daniel Lopatin. Really uh, trailblazing ambient person did uh, the music for Good Time and Uncut Gems. Oh, okay. I do like that music a lot, but I did not know the person's name. Ah. Yeah, he's good. The one I was going to bring up is a German artist who goes by the name Pole, P-O-L-E, where the kind of story of his work, or at least his early albums, goes that he had just bought a super expensive new drum machine. And then on the walk home with it, he dropped it down a flight of stairs and it broke on the ground. <laughs> oh, no. And he went home and plugged it in. It still makes loops, but the loops are just like crackles and pops that are just like corrupted and shitty sounding. Oh, lovely. So he built a trilogy of ambient albums off of the backs of those sounds, which are called One, Two, and Three. And you can find them on Spotify collected as One, Two, Three. But it feels like just like the platonic ideal of ambient music, where if you're lost in thought and you start really paying attention to the music, it's like almost groovy. It's got like a dubby kind of like funk groove to it that's really listenable and cool. But if you're not paying attention to it, you can literally forget that it's playing and it'll just like roll around in the background while you're doing something else. It's like perfect ambient music. It's it's great. That's awesome. I was glad that you mentioned Tim Hecker because you introduced me to Tim Hecker and I really like him. What's the album that you showed me? The good one that has like flames on the cover? I don't remember the title of that record. It's a Japanese word. Yeah. Anyway, if people haven't listened to Tim Hecker, he's very good. There's this, I would call it a dyad since there's only two of them. Yes, Jory, thank you. I learned that term from my boy JJ in The Rise of Skywalker. I love the term dyad. <laughs> also a good spelling B word for you hive mind people out there. Yeah, there's these two Tim Hecker records uh, called Konoyo and Anoyo, which is like basically like here and there. He recorded them with like a traditional Japanese folk ensemble and the first record, it like verges on dark ambient as his work sometimes does. The songs kind of evoke like melancholy and like pain and unpleasant shit. And then the second album is deliberately like much more kind of 
ethereal and sort of almost heavenly at times. It, it's a really beautiful couple of records. Fuck yeah. What's poppin' Laden? Not to be a problematic, depressed, bisexual stereotype, but I started listening to Phoebe Bridgers and I'm obsessed with Phoebe Bridgers. The the album Punisher, which is her one that came out this year, they got nominated for four Grammys. Perfect. So good. Stranger in the Alps, her first album. All of it's good. All her music videos are good. I'm of the like early aughts Julian Casablanca's school of lyrics writing where I like don't pay attention to lyrics ever. Like I don't care. I'm here for the vibe. Same. Meet me in the bathroom. That's what she said. Like that's all I need. I don't need some deep shit. There are like a few notable exceptions to that, like mountain goats and such. But like Phoebe Bridger's lyricism is so good and so sad. And just like the new album is so beautifully like mixed and uh, it's great. So if anybody needs a jumping in point on Phoebe Bridger's, watch the video for Kyoto. She has like a very David Lynchy music video for Savior Complex, which is probably my favorite song of hers. But I know she lives near me. And every time I see a beautiful woman with white hair walking around, I'm like, <laughs> Phoebe. But yeah, it's great. I really enjoy her music. I've really been meaning to listen to Punisher, but I have found it very difficult to listen to music that is not either a comforting blanket of nostalgia or basically just the sound of electronic pops and crackles since sometime in March 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know why that would have happened. I kind of fell out of listening to like indulgently sad stuff because I was like super into just like sad guitar. Like that was my thing. I was like, Iron and Wine, Sufjan Stevens, like uh, Elliot Smith, let's go. Who like Phoebe literally one of her songs is about Elliot Smith and uh, being like, it's good that he's not alive and live in my neighborhood because I would be a weirdo fan towards him. Uh, it's a great song. But yeah, I used to be way more into the indulgently sad stuff. And now I'm just so indulgently sad mood wise that it's like, I can't, I don't want to match this energy. Yeah, that's more or less how I feel. I tend to really like sad songs because they have that empathetic quality of making you feel understood. And yeah, this year it's just been too much. It's not fun to listen to that stuff. Yeah, it's not great. It's like, I don't want to throw on Elliot Smith's either. Or <laughs> like, I don't want to feel like shit. I do want to suggest an alternate path for both of you, which is to listen to the song, When Can I See You Again by Owl City for the 2000th time, which is what my life is currently because Audrey just puts that on repeat and dances around the house, which is very cute, but oh my God. I think the only Owl's Town song that I know is... uh, Fireflies? Yeah, yeah, the one about the hugs and the lightning bugs, yeah. I fucking hate that song. Which, Fireflies? Yeah, 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 Fireflies. When I would wake up to the clock radio in the morning at 6 a.m., for some reason, every single morning they played Fireflies for like so long. And so the idea of waking up at 6 a.m. to go to middle school, which is the worst feeling in the world, is just inextricably associated with that song. It's a real cold sweat inducing song to me now. Do you know what the biggest bummer to me is? If someone to you like in a vacuum said, hey, let's go see Fireflies in Owl City, you'd be like, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then you realize it's a terrible song by a bad band. It really pulls the rug out from under you. Cool. So shall we do our final segment? Yes. Welcome to our final segment of the show called Peaches and Lemons, where we just go around and we share a lemon, which is the thing that's like a petty grievance. We're going to air a petty grievance, and then we're going to each do three peaches, which are things we're excited about, happy about, grateful for, blah, blah, blah. It can be as petty or as meaningful as you want. We'll each do a lemon first. I literally forgot that we did lemons anymore. I can go first. I have a downer. I'm not quite as petty as we often are with these things, but I just got to say it. Our dog died. Poor sweet Coco is no more. And it's a real bummer. She was a great dog. And the day after Christmas, we decided we had to put her down because she basically couldn't eat anymore. It's been a real bummer. 
on the plus side, it is something Audrey can use for capital A acting, which there's been a lot of emoting going on. And I think she was genuinely sad for about 48 hours. And since then, it's just been an excuse for Wells for Boys style looking off into the distance and sighing. And it's... (laughs) It sounds like she's processing it like in a healthy way. Like sometimes you got to be in your feelings. She absolutely is. I mean, we talked about it. We told her that, uh, you know, Coco wasn't doing well and, and we had to do something and it was all her fault. (laughs) (laughs) I found myself reading one of your tweets about it. I think a lot of things that Audrey does, you know, that like whole, like stranger than fiction, the like inverse premise where it's like, Mm -hmm some real stories rendered into fiction actually strain suspension of disbelief. Yes. The thing that you tweeted out that was Audrey realizing how sad she was about Coco. And then you say to her, yeah, this is probably the saddest thing that's happened in your life. And she gives it a beat and says, I'll probably be sad when you die too. A little sad. (laughs) A little (laughs) Yeah, that is so unbelievably precocious and cute and funny and heartrending <laughs> that I would not believe it if a kid said that in a piece of media. It's so beautiful. It, it was very funny because yeah, she doesn't know what death is. She doesn't really understand it. How did you guys approach the like death talk with her? I mean, we just said it. We said, look, Coco is really suffering and we're going to take her to the vet and the vet is going to give her something that puts her to sleep and kills her. Because, you know, obviously you want to give kids what they can handle, but I also, I don't want to do any of the go off to a farm bullshit. Like, I think it's important to be honest with your kid. So our attitude towards a lot of that stuff is give her the information and then answer the questions asked, Mm -hmm. which is what we did. And she didn't have a lot of questions. She was sad. She cried. And we talked about, you know, once we take Coco to the vets, she's not coming home. And... That's something that a kid can understand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's COVID, so only one person could even be in the room, which was Rachel. So Audrey was not there to see this, which is honestly for the best. That's good, though. Having to be there when you put a dog down is like Ugh. just the worst thing in the world. I don't think you ever really get over it. Yeah. And we decided not to do it at home either because, as Rachel pointed out, she didn't want the next, whatever, five years to be like, and this is where my dog Coco died. You know? <laughs> So, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she handled it really well. You know, we were honest, but gentle. Are you guys going to get cremains or anything? No. Interesting. I remember the vet that we put my sweet childhood dog down at. I'm not sure if we even like paid for it or anything, but they sent us like, you know, a little like clay imprint of his paw and like this beautiful box that his remains were in with his name on it. And it was just like really nice. Yeah. That's super sweet. We just don't have any place to put it. We're not going to bury it. Yeah. We just decided that we didn't really have anything to to do with that. So yeah, it's dog ashes. I don't know. (laughs) And honestly, (laughs) if I can be totally honest with you, I'm still carrying around the ashes from my mom's dog that died in whatever, 2007. So I still don't know what to do with those. That is really tough. (laughs) Yeah. You can't get rid of them. And I'm not (laughs) saying you can't, but just like the emotional experience of being like, Time to discard this. Well, if you want to get real, real, my sister and I still have our parents' ashes, and we don't know what to do with those either. Like, yeah, they are in a Lord and Taylor, which is a department store bag, in my sister's closet. 
they were in my closet until I moved to England. And then I gave them to her, but our parents never told us what they wanted done. And we've talked about it for years. We keep putting it off and we had like services, you know, when they died, but what to do with those ashes, we have no fucking clue. It is very darkly funny that I feel like literally everyone has like the weird little box of ashes in their closet of some beloved person. It's just kind of like where they, I, I don't think I've ever in person seen anybody have like an urn or anything like that. Not in person. No. You know, we'll make jokes about it. Like we'd take my dad's ashes to Harold's Deli in Persephone and, you know, whatever. But <laughs> I have no idea what to do with them. You could send it to those companies that make ashes into little gems. Maybe. Yeah, that's something we could do. It's silly. I don't know why you would want to do that, really. It's just interesting that you can do that. I mean, the idea of scattering them somewhere in an environmentally friendly way is appealing, but there was literally nowhere we could think of to even do it. You know, like what would be mom's favorite place? I don't know. Well, it's also, this is like the, you know, funerals are for the living. Yes. It's more for the people who are still here of disseminating it. And then, you know, I don't know, whatever. It, death is weird. Death is weird. I don't know if anybody's ever said that, but like death is weird. Yeah. I know you don't normally, Leighton, think about death that much. <laughs> I will say as a quick little bit of advocacy here, every adult, and I know this is not something that most people are going to do before they're like 40 or something. Have a fucking will if you can and tell people what you want done with yourself. Like it is such a burden on other people that you're placing if you don't spell this shit out. And even if you, you know, just have automatic obvious next of kin, just having some kind of will, even a simple free thing you get online or whatever, if you can spend a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is to get a decent will, it actually makes a huge difference to survivors. Yeah, who are grieving you, and that's hard enough as it is. And then additionally dealing with like, oh, oh God, what do, they, what do they want? Yeah, and especially if there's like competing family members who are trying to deal with the estate, blah, 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 whatever. But I'm putting out a signal flare for advocacy for spelling out your post-life wishes as clearly as possible. Uh, and that will make it easier for everyone dealing with a whatever, you know, the tragedy of your death. Let's... Zoom through the rest of the lemons, Jory, if you would like to share. And by the way, if yours isn't sadder than mine, you lose. So go. Fuck. <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to pirate Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> I've been using CS5 forever. I thought about using an open source alternative. So I tried GIMP, the new image manipulation uh, package, and it's. It's so hard to use. Gimp is garbage. And I just don't know why there's not a better alternative. Fucking great. What can I say? You win. What a perfect lemon. Cool. That makes some juicy lemonade. <laughs> My lemon is, I don't know what it is, maybe new year, new internet, but like, has social media been particularly insufferable in the past like five days? Because for me, it's, it's been way more of like, what the fuck are you people talking about? Uh -huh. Yeah, I agree. It's been bad. That's my limit. I don't understand why the uptick happened, but just like, I thought, you know, it's stupid. Like you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I'm waking up. I'm looking at my phone. This is a bad practice. I shouldn't do anymore. I'm like, what is happening? What are you guys talking about? No. So yeah, it's fun. I love the internet. I agree with you. Probably a bunch of it is all this like, oh, sweet. 2020 is over. Let's go 2021 energy. And then realizing that it meant nothing that we're just a day later than the previous year. Yeah. And people are 
up to their same old bullshit and we're still in the middle of a pandemic and there's still political insanity going on. Impotent rage. A huge part of it for me is that um, everybody seems to be using social media as a way to compartmentalize and try to feel normal. And so <laughs> it's not necessarily that I want Twitter to be a nightmarishly bleak place where people talk about horrifying social realities, but I think maybe just don't use social media at all sometimes because like half of our government is trying to destroy the concept of governance forever. And I think I speak for the three of us, at least, when I say we live in the absolute worst place in the world for the current pandemic. Yeah. But being dad. But being dad, yeah. totally more important. I think the forever good advice is just log the fuck off. There are some people who need to be forcibly logged out of Twitter. Like, yeah, forget your password. Don't come back. Not everything needs an opinion, people. And no. Most things don't need your opinion. And I mean that to everybody, including myself. Yeah. Gene Park, a former late night guest and all around great dude, linked to an article yesterday that I read. I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it, but she had, and admits that she's not the first person to say this, but had a, a lovely paragraph in it, which was like, you know, when I was first on the internet, whatever, late 90s, it was like a place that people with shared interests could come together and now what it seems like the internet is, is primarily a place for strangers to be mad at you. And yep. it's really true. I was not a part of like those Usenet or whatever communities in the early days, but my dominant experience of the internet, the thing, by the way, that I owe my entire current career to, of course, actually, and the other one too, because it's such a big part of particle physics, but my dominant experience with the internet these days is being terrified that something is going to blow back that I didn't expect, which is why I am very, very careful and judicious about what I post. Yeah. You know, I have traveled places and given talks about this exact phenomenon. If anybody wants to watch my GDC talks on YouTube, right there, you can just look me up, GDC, <laughs> uh, where I talk about context collapse and why it's really easy to take things out of context on the internet. And people will be mad at you for justifiable reasons often, but also like we should think about what we're doing, like, a bunch of crabs in a bucket. Anyway. Internet bad, peaches good actually. So I'm going to go first because I'm going to forget mine if I don't just speed them out and go very fast. Peach number one, I'm so happy Jory is on the show today. I've been really excited to have him back on. Wow. And I haven't spoken to you voice in a long time. So that is peach number one. Peach number two is I won an auction for two vintage blockbuster video thermoses and I've gotten back into drinking green tea and it just really sparks joy for me to walk around with my Blockbuster video hot pink thermos with my green tea in it. Yes, that rips. It's great. It's a vibe. Makes me feel real good. And then my third peach is, as mentioned, I got to show Allie Knock Knock, which just a delight to watch somebody react to that dog shit movie in real time. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my three peaches. Quick little peaches. Maybe more like nectar. No. What's the, what's like the tiny, fuck, it doesn't matter. Yeah, nectarine. Nectarine. That's a good okay. one. Oh, yeah, nectarines are peach adjacent. Or like a pomelo? I don't know. Nectarines are to peaches what satsumas are to oranges. Of course, we all follow that metaphor. I'm trying to remember what they're called, the fruits that have a pit. Pluot? No, pluots are plums and apricots. Wait, pluots are a thing? Which have pits. Oh, yeah, I meant like the name for the overarching. Oh, droop. Droops! Wow, Brian, I knew you would know. Yep, uh, I'm your droop boy. <laughs> <laughs> Jory, why don't you hit us with your peaches then? Bit of a cop-out, but one of mine was definitely that I'm very grateful to be talking with y'all. This has been very uplifting. Very fun. Thank you. This has been a treat. 
One of the ones that I wanted to say is certainly, even though I'm experiencing a lot of pretty inexplicable social anxiety that sometimes makes it harder to emotionally trick myself into engaging than it probably should be, for the last couple of weeks, I've been feeling really grateful that this is happening in a time where we're post-internet accessibility. We all have the internet and it works super well and tech works well enough that we're able to reach out to people that we care about. And it, it feels very valuable to me. I would have days where I had no communication with anyone if it was not for that. Oh, it'd be like weeks and months and like the lighthousing yourself, but you're Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Yeah, you're both sides of that equation. <laughs> I think another thing I would probably say, I'm very grateful for the parasocial relationships that I've made in the last year. <laughs> And we already talked about, I don't want to advertise other podcasts on this show. I think if podcasts were not so accessible, and I say that in a time where literally every bubble is bursting around us in the worlds of commerce and media, but it seems like it's really possible for artists to put their voices out there and for listeners to find really specific niche things that they're interested in hearing. And I think that's a really cool thing. Fuck yeah. Brian? My first peach is that Coco died. <laughs> <laughs> No, sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> My first peach is that we got a bunch of temporary tattoos and covered Audrey in them. And it was the cutest thing because she felt like a total badass. Yeah, that's a delight. Temporary tattoos are amazing. Oh, they're so great. And we put one right on her stomach, which was like a bird. And then she was making it like fly <laughs> by rolling her stomach. It was, she was in heaven and it was the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> But little kids are often in these weird blissed out stages, uh, like they're tripping and watching a six-year-old covered in temporary tattoos and making the, the large Phoenix-like one on her stomach flap its wings was, uh, it was amazing to watch. That's charming as hell. It's the little things. Number two is, you know, I do a lot of my work day and recording this right now in my garage studio and Rachel and I came in here on Sunday and clean the shit out of it. And it looks amazing and I can actually maneuver around in it. It was a bunch of boxes that I just thrown in here. And I'm so happy to have a nice clean workspace for once. And I checked the late night with Brian Weck neon sign, which still works great. Fabulous. And it is just sitting on a flat surface here because I'm terrified to move it because of how easily it breaks. I don't mean to suggest that that issue isn't important to me, but the news about it definitely hasn't been relayed to me. So I did not even know it had been repaired. That is great to hear. Yeah. Yes. So when we did our second live show, as you remember, Jory, it had broken. And we only discovered that it had broken as we were setting it up on stage, which was um, fun. Yeah, and whatever gas it is that most noble of gases that keeps that thing running, there was still just enough left in it that it would briefly light up when you plugged it in, which made it like extra heartbreaking. Yeah, the backing on it is very flimsy. And Brian, you should straight up just hang it up. I don't know when we're doing a live show again. And my final peach is that I got real into drinking whiskey sours over the last week. What is a whiskey sour? A whiskey sour, Jory, I'll give you my recipe. It's two ounces of bourbon or whiskey, but a sweeter whiskey is good. Three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of one-to-one -one simple syrup. So that means like, you know, a cup of water, a cup of sugar, boil them, mix them together, let it cool. And then one egg white. Interesting. Put it all in a cocktail shaker with some ice, shake that fucker up, 
with egg whites, you got to shake them for a while to really get them nice and broken down and foamy. So like 20 seconds of solid shaking. Strain into a chilled glass with some cherries, maraschino cherries, if you like them. And that is a lovely, lovely drink. It's a little bit sweet, a little bit sour, a little bit whiskey, and the cherries add a nice little zing to it. That sounds really nice. Whiskey sours are good as fuck. I used to drink them all the time in shitty bars made with bad sweet and sour. They probably weren't very good. And I don't think I'd drunk a whiskey sour in, I don't know, 15 years or something. And making them this time, especially with fresh squeezed lemon juice, real nice. Mm. God, that sounds great. Jory, this was fantastic. I do want to apologize to Jarek for <laughs> another two and a half hour recording session. And also listeners for a very indulgent Brian Leighton Jory episode. Oh yeah, we, we talked a lot about things from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if anyone's listening to this show for the first time, and got this far in this episode, congratulations, you are a superhero. This is not the show for new listeners, but I had an amazing time. And Jory, it is such a pleasure to get to spend this time with you. Yeah, I'm very happy to have been here. Jory, I know you're not a big social media head, but where can people find you if they wanted to see your extremely excellent tweets? Extremely excellent. I think it's been more than a year. I'm on Twitter at Jory Griffiths. It's J-O-R-Y-G-R-I-F-F-I-S. Beautiful. That's what I got. Folks, thank you for listening. I think that's sweet of you. I hope you're all well in this new year and that you're staying safe and you're coming hard and a lot. Yeah. And maybe like too much. That's beautiful. <laughs> that's our new catchphrase that we say at the end. You know what? I don't think I've ever said it, Leighton. I think normally you say it at the end of every episode. Would you like to say it? Can I? You're allowed. All right. Stay safe. Come hard. Nope. You're not allowed to say it anymore. This is the end of the podcast. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Jory, you have to say bye, too. See you later, everybody. <laughs> Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>